the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And I know 60. The following program is sponsored by Reaching Hearts Ministries. Welcome back to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko's message today is entitled Force Field Faith. Now, we'll need to bring this message to you in two parts due to our time constraints here today, but we hope that you'll listen to it online at reachingyourheart.com. You can also download a copy to your MP3 library from that website. That's reachingyourheart.com. Just look for the broadcast schedule there on the main page. Our phone number here is 877-788-5371, 877-788-5371. Feel free to call us at any time. Let's get underway. Here's Pastor Mike. Dear Father God, I'm grateful today for Jesus. I'm very grateful that in the Son of God there is life. And that that life is the life we need today. May no one here believe that they can live without Him. And may everyone who believes live with Him forever as the reward of their faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. It made the news that she had done her level best to protect her personal future by holding it in a drawer. A wooden drawer. She lived in a country where it's hard to save it and it's hard to get ahead because outcomes are managed by the government. She lives in communist China, which has allowed just enough capitalism for certain people to get rich and the rest to stay poor. So she was doing her best to beat the almost certain odds that she would be poor. She was saving for her future in that wooden drawer. In a safe place, she thought. She couldn't afford a safe, so she stuffed it there, her 400,000 yuan, I think I said that right, in a plastic bag and a closed wooden drawer in her house. 400,000 yuan is worth about $65,000. That's a lot of money over there. You know, you say, well, Pastor Mike, that's a lot of money here. You wouldn't want to put that kind of money in a wooden drawer in your house. That's what she did. Curiously, she didn't earn the money herself. Her children gave her the money. And I'm sure someone here is praying, Pastor Mike, may I be smitten with a whole quiver full of children like that. I hope my boys, when they grow up, will remember their dad in his old age and give him many gifts that he might be secure. Am I the only one who thinks that way? I mean, our kids are our social security, right? No? (laughs) You... Well, I'm hoping they're my social security. It's funny how we depend on individual private plans instead of a family plan in this culture in which we have, right? I mean, the best security that you can have is to raise your kids to love the Lord and they will return that when you're older. So they gave their mother a small fortune to save for the future. They were in the business of giving her more money. She did just that. She saved it. She tucked it away for the future. She left it in that wooden drawer, content it would stay there where it was put. When she started to renovate her house, she thought she'd tap into some of that to help out. She went to the drawer, and to her shock and unbelief, termites had eaten of that bag, chomping down her paper fortune. She took the pieces to a local bank, 
And she was just terrified to think that these termites had eaten up her 400,000 yuan. They did a scan and they were able to verify most of it, but she had lost about 60,000 yuan, leaving about 340,000. That means the termites only ate $9,786 worth of her savings. Is that comforting? She was grateful she didn't lose it all to those little terrorists from beneath. Has anyone ever had termites at their house? You never have. You don't want them. There are times in life when you do your best and an unforeseen challenge arises that threatens to take your best away from you. That's exactly what happened to Abraham in the Bible. He did his best to protect his family, his nephew Lot, from an uncertain future. But the more he prospered, the more he helped others to prosper, it looked like it turned against him. That's the risk a person takes when they invest in others. When you invest in someone, it's very likely that someone can. That's the risk a person takes when they make a difference in someone else's life. Investing in others is a risky business, but there's a reward in it. Look at Genesis 13.5 with me as we move forward. The Bible says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Verse 7, And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. Now, the Perizzites sound like termites to me, or perhaps parasites. Have you ever thought that when you look at this name in the Bible? I mean, it's an unusual name. In verse 8, Abram speaks to his nephew Lot and says, Let there be no strife between you and me, for we are kinsmen. You know, perhaps this is the basis for the famous line in Psalms 133, verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. At this point, Abram gave his nephew Lot the choice of outcomes. The land on the left or the land on the right. Take your pick, Lot. I'll take what's left over for me. You choose first. I'll choose later. I once did that. I had a friend who had a car because I gave it to him and didn't know what I was doing. My Bible teacher said to me, would you like a car? He says, I have a car. And I thought he was wanting to sell the car. I said, no, I can't afford it. He says, okay. He asked my friend to my side, Joe, do you want a car? He says, well, how much is it? One dollar. He says, I'll take it. And I was just blue in the face after that exchange. You should always ask rather than just answer. My friend Joe, who always had the best deal or ended up on the top of things, got the car for a dollar. It was something. Genesis 13.10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt and the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. And he didn't just choose part of the thing. He chose the entire Jordan Valley. He chose the most fertile piece he could get. Lot left his older uncle with the harder road to hoe and the more difficult path for his retirement plan. Lot noticed that the Jordan Valley was watered like the Garden of the Lord. It looked like the Garden of Eden. So Lot chose what looked like the Garden of Eden and Abram was left herding his sheep in the land of the Canaanites. And I might add the Perizzites, who sound like termites. They were there. Holding the bag as his nephew Lot chose the valley of the cities of Sodom. It looked like Lot had achieved a success that he had acquired a valley that looked like the very Garden of Eden. Now, the Bible says they separated from each other. Now, by this time, Abram is an old man. I mean, life is not easy for him. He's been doing his level best to track 
and to get things going. And what he discovers is, is that as he has come to this critical juncture in his life, his nephew gets all the outcome of all his effort, and he ends up with a hard time. Genesis 13, 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your descendants also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Verse 18, So Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Now this is the setting for the first fight in Abram's life. Up to this point, Abram has been a passive kind of man. Phlegmatic, laid back, rolling with the punches. He was reluctant to enter into controversy with Pharaoh who stole his wife in chapter 12. He should have stood up and said, listen, you got my wife, man. His wife was so greatly diminished because he didn't stand up for his wife. When pushed to controversy with his nephew Lot, Abram let his nephew have his way in chapter 13. It was lucky chapter 13 for Abram. He sacrifices so his nephew Lot can get the best Lot over him. I'm sure that made his wife happy again. But the crisis of chapter 14 changes everything in Abram's life forever. It represents a turning point for a man who put others first. Look at Genesis 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elasser, Kedilatlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beresha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemembar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. The invasion from the north is led by four kings, which represent four dimensions of the land Abram left behind. Their names are colorful, and they personify the arrogance of the land of Babylon. For our benefit, we're going to call them the Fantastic Four. Let's look at king number one. The first king claimed to be the wise one. Amraphel, king of Shinar, means one who speaks of darkness. Now, the rabbis speculated that his name means one who brings darkness upon the world. But most likely the name means he was the bright light in the bunch and everyone else was dimwits. He had the light in the midst of darkness. So he was the wise one. Second king, number two, claimed to be the ferocious one. Ariok, king of Elasser. Ariok means lion-like and Elasser means God is a chastener. Of course, it is implied that Ariok is the lion of God that God himself uses to defeat the evil kings of the Jordan. The third king claimed to be the fertile one. Kedard Lawimer, king of Elam, means a handful of sheaves is the king of eternity. And the fourth king claimed to be the great one. Title, king of Goa, means the great son, king of the nations. Now what we have here is the fantastic four who had a lot of faith in themselves. Amraphel, the king of wisdom. Ariok, the king of ferocity. Kedard Lawimer, the king of fertility. And Title, the king of greatness. The fantastic four were men to be avoided in Abram's day. I mean, have you ever run up against people who just have it out for you and they are the fantastic four and you are not so fantastic in your opposition to them? So here was Abram, technically weak in the land of his sojourning. Here were these great forces that could oppose him and he just liked being quiet and staying out of the way. The text says they set their sights against the four kings of the Jordan Valley. 
The kings of the Jordan were not as wicked as the kings from the land of Shinar. Their names are just as colorful, but they are not as fantastic as the Fantastic Four. King number one, Barak, king of Sodom, means in Hebrew, in wickedness, king of burning. He's the king that burns in the end when fire falls on Sodom and Gomorrah. King number two, Bershah, king of Gomorrah, means in rebellion, king of submersion. He sinks into death because he is a rebel against God. King number three, Shanab, king of Adma, means seen. The moon god is his father. He's the king who never trusts God as his father. He's the king who never trusts the son of God, the light of God's glory. He lives in the darkness. He dies in the darkness. King number four, Shemimbar, means my name is mighty. He was the king of Zeboam, which means glories. And the king of Bela, which means swallowed up. And the king of Zoar, which means little or insignificant. When a person is stuck on themselves and they think that their name is mighty and they rejoice in how glorious are, they shouldn't be surprised if they get swallowed up in the end and they become insignificant like Zoar. So the Fantastic Four came from the north to engage the not-so-Fantastic Four from the land of Sodom. It was really no contest. The battle was over before it began. The Fantastic Four swept down from the north and they engaged the not-so-Fantastic Four in a battle and they fell into the tar pits as they ran scared like mice for their lives. The kings got away, but the whole country was subdued. Genesis 14.10 Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the mountain. So the enemy took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. When the battle ends, the not-so-fantastic four kings are hiding in the mountains or dead. And Abram's nephew, Lot, is a hostage in the land of the terrorists. To make matters worse, the terrorists are on their way home praising the righteous achievements of the fantastic four. In verse 13, a man escapes and comes to Abram and tells him, all that has happened to his cities. And then he informs him, of course, your nephew Lot has been captured too. Now remember that God has promised Abram just after Lot left for the Jordan Valley that he would give him that valley along with everything else to the north, the south, the east, and the west. So what was going through Abram's mind here? Could this not be the righteous intervention of God that has allowed the will of God to be worked out in my life? With Lot gone, it looks like the best of the land is for me. God's promise has come true. If he did nothing, it was his by default. Look, there it is. The not-so-fantastic four were captured or dead, along with his greedy nephew Lot who was captured. Or the not-so-fantastic four were hiding because Abram didn't know. But the net result is he has the land. Unlike Abram, another person might have seen this as God's hand in his life. Great is the Lord, and the wonders of His ways are mysterious and marvelous. The Most High has opened a path for me, perhaps, they would have said. Now, this is the first test of Abram's life. It looks like the fantastic four have given Abram everything he wants. So what choice will he make that will determine the future outcome? Only one problem. Lot is his kinsman, and the fantastic four are not God. So to have it happen this way is not God's will. And Abraham makes a decision that he will not win if it means Lot must lose for him to win. Friend, Abram was a man who cared more about his brother and his family than his brother's goods. 
Abram was a man who cared more about his kin than a good win. Abram was a man who measured greatness by kindness, not conquest. Abram was a man who learned to stand up for God like a man. And for the first time in Abram's life, he had to fight for kindness. He had to step out of his phlegmatic, take-it-easy role to pull his nephew Lot to safety. He had to become a man of action for God. He had to stand up for the weak or he would never be able to stand up as a man of God in the future. There comes a time in every Christian man's life when he has to stand up for God. Now, women have to stand up for God too. I'm not diminishing that. But we live in a culture that would teach men that they cannot stand for God as men of God. And for a Christian father to be a Christian father, he must be the leader in that home. Did you hear me? There's silence here, isn't there? Now, if you're a Christian mother and you're raising a child without a father, you're the leader of that home. A Christian father must lead. Abram, in the story, had been led by circumstances. He had allowed difficulties to shape his life experience. And suddenly he's in a situation where he must act. He must stand up. He must fight for that which is important for him in life. He must seize the ground of his family and secure a future even for his nephew Lot who has lost it because he's made such an awful decision. So he makes the decision to fight for what he believes in, to fight for family, to fight for God. Genesis 14, 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan. You look at the number here. There are 318 trained men. The Hebrew word trained means dedicated. Abraham had a little over 300 dedicated men. He engaged four armies with them. Let me ask you the question. Where have we seen 300 men fighting a mighty army? It's the story of Gideon, right? So here we see the foretaste of Gideon in the faith of Abram. He takes those 300 men, he engages them, he defeats them, he wins his family back. Verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants. He routed them and pursued them to Habah, north of Damascus. Abram gathers the goods and gives a tithe of everything to Melchizedek, king of Salem. And Melchizedek, in the context, was priest of the Most High God. Now, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. He is king of Salem, which means peace. So he was the king of peace. So why is he doing this? Abram is recognizing, first of all, that God is in control of his life. Second of all, he's recognizing that peace is better than war. So when you have to fight, there comes a time to pursue peace. So he gives his tithe to Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. Test number two comes to Abraham in verse 21. Genesis 14, 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, maker of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and their share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So with the victory behind him, Abram realizes that the truth about God is on trial here. What kind of witness will Abram have for those who've watched the conflict? Will it look like Abram has done this so he can get ahead? Will Abram sacrifice so it will be clear that he did this for love of God and love of family? So he says, let everybody else take the reward. I'll take nothing. I mean, there are times people come to church and they say, well, I go to church and I'm not really getting anything out of it. 
And I've tried to see why I'm not getting anything out of it. And it's everybody else's fault. Ever hear that? Well, here's Abram. I mean, he has secured a fortune by this victory. And when he was misused by his nephew Lot, it would look like this would be the great day of his life. And what does he do? He says, I don't want anything. I'm here to serve. I'm here to make a difference because I have something to say about God. And friend, if you're coming to church and your needs aren't being met and you are not serving in the church in some capacity, you have the answer to your problem right there because your needs will never be met by just trying to have others meet your needs for you. Your needs are met when you find a place where you can make a difference for the Lord and you invest in the lives of others. Genesis 14, 21, he said in verse 23, he says, I'm afraid that people will say that I have made Abram rich. Abram followed God because God is worth following even if you're poor in the journey. The man or woman who follows God is rich because he or she has God. How many of you have been suffering during these hard economic times that we're going through a little bit? I mean, you love it. Just love the new economy. I mean, I've had a little hard time in the economy. Have you? I mean, you like inflation creeping into your food values. You like that? You don't like that, do you? Well, I don't like it at all. I mean, we want things to go well in our life, don't we? And we measure success usually by how much money we have in the bank account, right? How secure we are in our long-term plans, correct? But what happens when it all falls apart and you have none of that? Well, you're silent, aren't you? What happens when you're poor in terms of money? You don't have the riches of the world. What if you have God? What if you have God? What if you have others who love you? What if you have all the money of the world and you don't have these things? You're really poor, aren't you? You know, it's funny. We have an upside-down culture where people pursue things and they lose people and friendships in the mix. Abraham followed God because God is worth following even if you're poor in the journey. The man or woman who follows God is rich because he or she has God, has the people of God, has the dedicated ones with them. Abram gave up Ur of the Chaldees because the call of God was of more value than a successful business or a career in the wrong land. He gave up the loot because kindness is more important than the conquest. He let Lot have it back, and he took his lot with God. As the thrill of victory wears off, Abram realizes that he is in deep political trouble. By saving the not-so-fantastic four... It looks like he is without intention to align himself to Bera and Bereshia, the two kings named respectively in wickedness and in rebellion. So up to this point in time, Abram was known as a man of peace who minded his own business. But now he has come to be feared as a man of war. Abram is clearly a target for the next terrorist who wants to make a name for himself. Abram is an old man here. He's not young anymore. And fear begins to rattle in his arthritic bones in the hard time of life. And he now becomes afraid. It's the kind of fear that comes when you can't defend yourself. It's the kind of fear that comes when you don't have the energy you started the journey with. So God comes to Abram. When Abram is exposed to an open danger he cannot control, when he has no children to protect him, when he has not yet become the father of a single child in God's plan. And so here he is without a child, either Hagar's child or Sarah's child, yet to be born they are. And he is left to the fears of his old age. Genesis 15.1 After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This is the first time in the Bible that God manifests himself as a shield to anyone. 
You know, there are many metaphors for God in the Hebrew Bible. God is a fortress. God is a rock. God is a flame and a fire. God is a river of living water. But dear heart, when faith is on trial and the armies of evil press about you, you know what God is? God is a shield. God is a protection for the person who needs him. Without reservation, God reaches out to the fearful believer and he declares that he is a shield. The word for shield in Hebrew is my gain. It's a round shield or buckler that is held tight with the hand. That's the kind of shield it is. In his journey from the east, Abram held God's hand tight by faith. And when fear finally sets into his bones, God reveals to Abram that the hand that he has held by faith, the hand that he has held into the darkness of the hour, he now struggles to survive in. That hand that he has held, he discovers, is in fact the hand of God that is a shield for him. God says, I am the shield that you are holding with your hand. In Exodus 32, 22, God promises Moses that he would shield him with his hand. The text reads, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Psalms 18, 35, thou hast given me the shield of thy salvation and thy right hand supported me and thy help made me great. The Hebrew word for shield is my gain, and it is derived from the Hebrew word ganan, the verb, which means to cover, to surround, to protect. God is called a shield 15 times in the Old Testament. Well, that will conclude the first portion of Force Field Faith. Today is Reaching Your Heart. You can go online to reachingyourheart.com if you'd like to download a copy of this message. You'll find it under the broadcast schedule there on the main page. Just look for today's date. Our phone number here is 877-788-5371. 877-788-5371. Feel free to call that telephone number at any time with any questions that you have. Please don't forget us when you're thinking of your contributions. We continue here because of your kind and generous offerings. The address here is Reaching Hearts International, 15300 Spencerville Court, Suite 201, Burtonsville, Maryland, 20866. That's 15300 Spencerville Court, Suite 201, Burtonsville, Maryland, 20866. Thanks for listening, and as always, we want you to know that we pray that God is reaching your heart. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.